0: Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and I'm joined this week by Andrew O'Hagan, whose new book is The Secret Life. It's a collection of three long essays that have previously appeared in the London Review of Books, regrettably not The Spectator, and which is subtitled Three True Stories. One of them is the story of Andrew's semi-successful time as Julian Assange's ghostwriter, one of them about Craig Wright, another possible ghostwriting subject that he seems to have bished up, the man thought to have been the inventor of Bitcoin, and the third one is about Ronnie Pinn,
1: a real person who Andrew invented. Andrew, what is it that unites these three stories? I think I've always been interested in the way that so much of what we might call contemporary life consists of confected lives, When I was a child, a person with a birth certificate and parenting and assumedly DNA was called a person. It was a self. It was quite stable. But over the decades since my childhood, I've noticed an increasing potential for individuals to confect their story, to be more than one person. Of course, this isn't a brand new subject in terms of literary history, the idea of the dual self. Even in Scotland, where I come from, or perhaps especially in Scotland, it's a very central literary concern. I mean, uh, listeners will remember (laughs) James Hogg, uh, Confessions of a Justified Sinner, and perhaps even more famously, uh, Robert Louis Stevenson's The Strange Case of Dr Jekyll and Mr Hyde. These were favourite texts of mine when I was a kid, and I've always, I suppose, taken it for granted that, as Virginia Woolf said, nobody is simply one thing. But I didn't expect to find grand examples of that in the contemporary scene in the real world as we think of it. I thought that maybe as a novelist I didn't in- invent such characters, but these three people that you mentioned were all, to some extent, two of them by their design, one of them by my design, were living uh, double lives, in Julian Assange's case, multiple lives. And, and I, I saw it as a task to bring the story of their multitudes to the reader's. But one of the things, that, I mean, Assange seems to be,
0: you know, it's the first essay in the book, and it's the one that kind of almost, if not sets a tone, does a sense of, you know, these echoes. So Assange gives way to, you know, Craig Wright. You've got, you know, Ed Snowden is in two of the things. that The internet is a really important part of this book. I mean, because ordinarily, collections of previously published essays look like a diverse bag, and this does have, as your introduction yes. says, a kind of coherence to it. I always knew they would
1: come together. I mean, after I had been perhaps... Three or four months on the Assange story, where I was literally in a country house in Norfolk while he was under house arrest, being his sort of rather sort of Johnny-come-lately, not entirely willing Boswell, as he, you know, pontificated about his life and tried to conceal himself more than reveal himself to me, his putative, you know, ghostwriter. Um, I realized even at that point that other areas of the internet were opening up. The areas of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency were the great sort of mythical figures who are supposed to have invented that, were gathered under the name Satoshi Nakamoto. I even knew then that all of those figures, the aliases, the avatars, it seemed to to be made to feel so hospitable on the internet. There's something about the internet, about the way that one can both be present and not present, use one's name or not.
0: You talk at one point about how the internet is sort of both welcoming and sort of savagely hostile. I mean... Yes,
1: it's a sort of fiction machine to my generation. Of course, when I say my generation, I mean people like me over 45 who remember what life was like and what research was like before the days of the internet. When I was writing my first book, which was a non-fiction book called The Missing, about missing people in Britain in the 90s, I spent... The best part of a year and a half in the British Library, going through old electoral records, you know, trying to find out where people had lived, looking for hard documentary evidence of, as it were, how people had been inscribed into the world, cut to 20 years after that. And the way that people are, as I said, inscribed into society or into history is all through the Internet. As you quote me saying, I I think it is, you know, it's both a wonderful enabler and a terrible dark place at the same time. We still haven't quite worked out what this lawless madness that is the internet, where it's going to take us in the end. Because, of course, we love its usefulness and it's done incredible things for us. If you look at what it's done in terms of information and education and charity and, you know, the, the bringing of the world into a shared space, if you like... Those of us who remember how, how far away Russia used to seem, as the Soviet Union used to seem, and how impossibly, dementedly cut off China was in the 1970s, will now realise that the internet has done wonders for bringing us together as a global community, and yet, at the same time, it's also the prime tool of sociopaths the world over. So that's what we're dealing with at the same time.
0: And one of the things you talk about in your introduction, which I think is kind of dealt with in a paradoxical and complex way in this book is the difference between, you know, you've got two hats really, you're a reporter and you're a writer of fiction, and that you feel these things are kind of blurring here, in the sense you're certainly your two subjects as a reporter here. Craig Wright is this sort of anonymized, you know, Satoshi. And, you know, Julian Assange is a kind of self mythologizer and a you know, a sort of global narcissist. I mean which of the tools was to the foremost?
1: Interestingly for me You know, I couldn't have deployed one without a sense of the other. That This really was, technically speaking, a series of jobs in which I, I could only go further into the real stories of these men if I freely used fictional devices to, say, plot, character, atmosphere, using historical documents in a more ample and, I would say, spread your elbows kind of way, where I really allowed the reader to sort of In terms of pace, to sort of hang around the detail, to be in the room more. You know, technically, these are things that I would naturally deploy every day as a fiction writer. Um, And yet, I wanted to make these things provable in a court of law.
0: Well, in a less obviously abstract way, though, you were summoned in, in the case both of Craig Wright and of Julian Assange, and the former was
1: led to by the latter...
0: You know, with people just coming, saying, come and write my story. I mean, New I was amazed plunged in
1: very weird worlds. Absolutely amazed by that. You know, that people's vanity and people's sense of need can be so strong that they forget, as Joan Didion once described it, that your instincts as a writer run counter to their interests. I was always amazed that none of them that you've mentioned stopped and said, wait a minute, this guy's been with us for the best part of a year. He's been taking notes and recording conversations for all that time. Is it really the case that he will only reflect what we want to be reflected? Because of course, no writer worth his or her salt is going to just do that. It became clear even to me that the material was enriching by the day. And some of it did seem fictive to me, some of the, what was going on. I'll give you an example. We were sitting in this kitchen in Norfolk one evening, my back against the warm agar, as, the, as Julian Assange and his assistants were bashing crazily on their laptops. It turns out they were, they, they were fighting through the digital corridors of northern Canada to gain access, to hack into, that is, the Nortel, the company that supplied telecommunications to Egypt, The Egyptian uprising was going on that day. Mubarak had realised only too late that the whole revolution was being run from social media. He closed down the internet in Egypt and from that house in Norfolk, Assange and his associates were fighting to get it back up and they succeeded. That scenario I've just described is new to literature, new to journalism, new to movies, new to everything. And I'm experienced enough, I have to tell you now, as a writer to... as I. You know, felt my backside warming at the agar to think (laughs) this is brand new and I must get it down in one way or another. Gold. And I mean, there's a hint
0: because it's a phrase that I know so well from Le Carré in your title, The Secret Life. You know, there's a writer of spy here. You know, you talk about yourself as someone who all the way through manages in a very sort of sinuous way to refuse to sign any contracts, to refuse to be bound to do anything. I mean, on the one hand, you disappear into the background, but on the other hand, you're working your own agenda throughout this, I would say.
1: I I mean, I would, of course, say this, but I think it's a writer's privilege, a writer's honour, and a writer's good luck, if you can manage it that way, to be the person in the room who's risking least and taking away most. That's the the unfortunate situation for subjects and the great privilege of writers. Don't, Don't invite a writer into a room if you uh, want to be in control of how things come to seem. I mean, I think it was Evelyn Waugh, that great friend of The Spectator's once upon a time, who said that when a writer's born into the family, the family's finished. And I think that can be true of many relationships beyond the family. I mean, I say it with a smile on my face. I mean, we have responsibilities to tell the truth and to be orderly about our notes and to represent what was actually said and to be legally appropriate and so on, not to defame or libel. But within those rules, uh, we have a responsibility, not to the people that we're writing about, but to our readers, to be as entertaining and truthful and as insinuating, I would say, as we can be. As for my place in all of that, I mean, I saw myself as a disappearing entity in the room, all the better to watch, listen and learn, as we used to say at primary school.
0: Though It's the novelistic detail that snags the attention. I mean, I was really interested to hear you say a little earlier, which is chimes with anybody who... Read, read this, you know. Like, oh, well, well, there's a bit of back and forth about what Julian said to X about Y and whether David Lee was right about mm. the leaks and so forth. But the thing you mostly remember is Julian sitting there eating lasagna with his hands and licking the plate clean in a kind of really grotesque way and then leaving the plate for some minion to clear up. Funny and that seems not. to go straight to the heart of his character. Funny you know?
1: I'm glad you say that and remember it because that was the thing that upset him most. I was, I'm surprised to report, even still... You know, that because there, there was an international court case going on around him at that time. There's a question of extradition. There's a question of the, uh, the, the ethics of revealing military and you know, private documents into the public domain, the idea of redactions and protecting people from harm. That's not what concerned him at all. What concerned him was that I'd portrayed him to the world as somebody with no table manners. <laughs> And these are the comedies that are thrown up. There was a carry-on spying element to this, I have to say, even for me. I mean, of course, in the end, there are grave matters at issue with this stuff. But I hope that along the way I managed to not lose myself so much in the room or the series of rooms, the many thousands of rooms that it took to get these pieces written in different spaces in different countries. I hope I didn't lose myself so much in all of that that I didn't see the funny side. Because to me, there is an absurdity about these self-confected individuals on the internet. They might not see it themselves, but it was always evident to me. Well, you
0: you say in at least two of these essays, you know, I felt like I was the only adult in the room. You know, I mean, are you still in touch with your surrogate son? Your, I think
1: I think one of the prices that I had to pay knew I would have to pay about being... The adult in the room, and what's more, positioning myself when I wrote the pieces as the adult in the room, as the writer tends to end up being, you know, I was the one giving an account of this. So far, they might give their own accounts in some other way. But I was aware that um, they wouldn't be able to handle it. At least I was aware that Julian Assange wouldn't be able to handle it. This man was a kind of uh, wonderful kind whirlwind of narcissism by the end of my time with him and well beyond my time. This is a man who uh, had a vast sense of himself as a victim whilst wearing the expression of a perpetrator. And I was aware of that irony all the time when I was dealing with him and tried to bring it to his mind, actually, tried to give him, as I describe it in the book, a crash course in self-deprecation, I thought was an order for Mr. (laughs) Assange, but he wasn't overly willing to take it. If
0: you can't get as far as (laughs) self-knowledge,
1: self-deprecation will hold the fork. he, uh, He was several steps back from even the possibility of, of of learning any of those techniques but I knew that when it came to me writing um, about our time and I did wait three years after my last visits in the Ecuadorian embassy those late, late night visits where he seemed to me to be dissipating into a mister Kurtz Curse-like state surrounded by his demons and his unwillingness to learn or listen. I waited three years and I knew that he wouldn't be able to handle it and I wrote to him saying I'm about to return to first base as a writer and exercise my freedom of expression in relation to you and my experience with you. Yes, and I said goodbye in that letter because I knew he would never be able to recover from my individual taking up of my pen and writing about him and indeed we've never spoken since. It has to be said Craig Wright. On Comey
0: Day, which is when we're recording this podcast, you don't know what he was talking to Nigel Farage about.
1: No, I don't precisely know what he was talking to him about. I mean, it's it's outside the law, I think, for to, to allow my speculations to be recorded. But let's say that's one of the sort of more grotesque couplings in, uh, in in the news cycle recently. But of course, there's always Pamela Anderson there to sort of referee, referee between them. She has also been a visitor in recent times to, to the embassy. Craig Wright, the purported inventor of Bitcoin, who is the center of the third of the pieces in the book, he was much more sanguine altogether about having been written about when he realised he'd lost control of the entire business of emerging as the inventor of Bitcoin. The green. I mean, we which should set situation. this in context a little bit. When you, yes. you
0: were hired on the back of the Assange Association, which we all know... I wasn't quite hired. They all. offered
1: to hire me, and I said I refused to sign any Sorry, absolutely. Yeah. Um, they came with a suggestion that I perhaps write uh, the life story of... Satoshi Nakamoto, for listeners who won't be aware, Satoshi Nakamoto was the moniker, the mythic figure who published white papers a number of years ago laying out the founding theory and mathematics of Bitcoin, which is the world's premier cryptocurrency. That's to say a currency that only exists online outside the ken of the control of central banks. Yes. So that's becoming a very important thing in the world today, cryptocurrency and the banks. A consortium of actual banks have spent hundreds of millions of dollars trying to harness this blockchain and Bitcoin technology because he understands it's the way of the future. Anyway, that having been said, this man who was purported to be the inventor of it wanted to step into the light, be unmasked, literally. And he was aware that the world wanted Satoshi to be a man on a zen cloud, cross-legged with a long grey beard, <laughs> full of wisdom and a twinkling eye. Not to be a 48-year-old, slightly overweight man called Craig from Australia. (laughs) and This was at the corner of his nervousness about coming out, that he felt he couldn't live up to the myth. Brilliant as a computer scientist, as Craig Wright is, he knew that he he was going to disappoint, perhaps, the mythologists. But in the end, although he suffered something of a breakdown and a terrible... You know, more than a wobble, an actual falling apart in the face of the world media's attention on the possibility of him being Which a fraud. Which we should
0: say was sort of pushed onto him.
1: It was. To an extent, bit, I mean, by somebody who wanted to, you know, he found a way of clearing his debts. Yes. He had investors
0: who were always very, very murky as to who they were in your
1: These piece. men who I called the men in black in the story were actually businessmen, investors, who had got in touch with him, found out his story... Wanted to package his future patents, which he was working on the whole time, since Bitcoin. Package all the uh, signs together and sell the whole thing to, as it were, Google. Uh, sell uh, them on and make
0: some zeros was the kind of yeah.
1: Um, line, buy and sell out, make some zeros is what the uh, exactly. That's what the the chief project leader, the, the the investor, said to me. And all these guys are characters in this story. Well, so what did they brought you in, and they said? We'll give you lots of money to mm.
0: be his ghost. To we'll to give you a
1: fortune, not to be a ghost, but if you just write his story as in uh, and as Andrew me. Hagen, you know that yeah. here yeah. is a great figure of the internet age. Here is the great mystery figure who invented the, the the future as they saw it, and as some people see it, in a post two thousand and eight post crash situation, Bitcoin has become more and more of an exciting possibility for those people, if not for the public at large yet. But they saw this outing of Satoshi by a known writer, as they saw it, as being one of the ways in which uh, the sale of Bitcoin and all its patents to, say, Google no. for over a billion dollars would take place. All of that money was on the table, including their offers. To me, I turned down the money in order to retain independence and go ahead and write as I would seek to write in any situation. And that, what I did was I told the story of the whole breakdown and of And what's so odd is that they,
0: they said, we want you to do it. And you said, I won't do it, or at least I'll do it, but Not that way. don't pay me, I'll just do it my own way. Yeah. And then they kept you in. And then they suddenly realised this might have been a bad idea. Mm. And then they said, right, uh, can you sign this NDA? And you said, get to hell. And they said, all right, fair enough, you're still invited.
1: It was a very strange circumstance. I'm sure they'd regret it now. But there was something of Janet Malcolm, the famous writer in The New Yorker, who wrote about the relationship between journalists and their subjects, that vanity on the part of the subject knows no end. You know, they... it wasn't in their interest by that point. As you uh, quite rightly say, they recognised that here was a writer free-floating through this very controversial and very lucrative potentially story, uh, unchecked, uncensored, uh, unrestricted, access all, all areas for six or seven months, and when they realised that, they realised it too late because not only would I not sign a non-disclosure agreement at that point, but their vanity wouldn't allow them to not be fully written about in the end either. They do you think it was that, rather it? than they
0: just thought you was fully invested in their hope that you being kind of a good chap would keep them going, rather than if they, if they cut you loose, they felt they were so fast steeped in blood that you'd I write think, it anyway. I think there's
1: also the possibility that they were worried I would do that. But in a sense, it's always a bit of a, an error, I think, to imagine that writers that you freely invite into a series of private rooms are going to automatically wish to please you first rather than please your readers. Well, that's actually
0: lead, leads me to a line you have in the book that you say, "Pleasing people is my chief vice as a man and my chief my main virtue as a reporter," mm. which is the other way round than most people would think of it. And was that an intentional paradox?
1: I think it is a paradox for me. You know, I guess that when you 're in a situation where you know there 's a story to be told that can only be it can only as it were emerge through human relationships, then part of your duty i would say or at least part of your opportunity if we don 't want to force the issue um, is to cultivate those friendships and allow them to proceed as, as you would hope was um opening up of people rather than closing them down anybody who's been a journalist for a long time knows that you don't go into a room and start shouting and bawling and being obnoxious in a way that's going to clam your subject up sk burley (laughs) yes i mean there are those who do and those who do rather successfully but for me this was a human story in which one was required to be a human being and human being means you know being nice to your subjects and getting on with them then i've always done that quite naturally do you out of interest do you think because it's it's sort of an open question at the end of the book. Do you think
0: that Craig Wright was Mr. Satoshi? Because yes, part of the story is that he failed to completely authenticate it in various complicated he ways. He did.
1: He, he failed his own paternity test in front of the BBC, The Economist, the world's media, and me for what it's worth. <laughs> um, although I had actually seen him use those keys before the public uh, demonstration of them. He certainly had the original keys to the original blockchain that was laid down without complicating it for listeners. I mean, this blockchain was actually invented on computer. It's a piece of software. And he, as the author of that software, I mean, not only did he fit it in terms of the timeline, in terms of his expertise, but he had the original pass keys as well. So either he was there at the foundation of Bitcoin, or he invented it. It had to be one or other. And it seemed to me that Because of the patents he was working on at the time I was working with him, it seemed to me entirely likely that he was him and also entirely likely and consistent that he couldn't face taking the mask off. The mask, often in the age of the internet, is too profoundly glued to the face. It's not just a question of an avatar or a Facebook avatar that you lift and lay, that you are more than one person almost accidentally. These men had become hard-coded on the internet, into their false personhood and trying to just step out as a guy with a clean shirt and a neatly parted hair in front of the BBC cameras was just something in the end he could not bring himself to do. He was profoundly nervous about every bit of it. I I saw that develop slowly as we went along and I kept saying to the men in black, to the money men, the investors, he doesn't want to do this. And he said, yes, he does. He knows the big pot of gold at the end. But no, he... He did, in the end, walk away well, from a billion he a dollars. He a of gold in the first place. You know? Yeah, I mean, and that's always been the speculation about Satoshi Nakamoto. If you're the inventor of Bitcoin, then you're doing pretty well as it is. I mean, out of interest, people might be entertained to know that when I was working on this story, a single Bitcoin was worth $220. As of this morning, it's worth $2,400 a coin. That's unbelievable. Yes, I did buy a few before you asked. Not too many, though. <laughs>
0: And now the final story is the second of the stories, but the one that I think I've left last because it seems to me to be almost the oddest of all three is the description of how, I mean, you know, you've dealt with two great internet fabulists or... Yes. And then you went and you created, I mean, you, to explain briefly to listen, you went into a cemetery, you found the gravestone of somebody who was roughly your contemporary... Yes. I think, Ronnie Penn. And he then decided, out of, I'd I'd like to know why, to
1: create a sort of virtual identity for him. So Ronald Penn was buried in a South London graveyard in 1980, aged 20, a young boy who died of a drug overdose. I had no previous knowledge of him. I was in that graveyard for other reasons, actually. I had been writing a different story about a boy who'd died in a um, a gang attack many years before. And I went back to that graveyard because I'd noticed in my first visit that there was a lot of gravestones of young people. For some reason, I'd never noticed before so many young dead in a graveyard. So I went back deliberately to look for a grave at random of a boy who I could then build a legend around. I'll tell you why I did it, Sam. At that time, it had been revealed that... The Metropolitan Police in London had done exactly that for a number of years. They had taken the names of dead children from graveyards around the country, then built what they called a legend around them. That's to say, fabricated a life, uh, used the original documents in order to infiltrate various political groups as police officers can and I gather sort of information.
0: Say, a brief interjection. I thought, or at least popular legend has it, that the idea that you can. Go to a graveyard, find a child grave, apply for a birth certificate, and then create a false paper trail around it. Sort of died with the day of the jackal. But no,
1: when it was always intended that it would die. The whole biometrics of you know well they just cross identity, check birth with death certificates. they're supposed to, yeah. but they don't. And I found it actually relatively easy to get his birth certificate, and then from his birth certificate to begin to build. In parallel, the real life of Ronnie Penn, I was investigating at the same time. I wanted readers to experience, as it were, the reality of this dead boy's actual 20 years on earth at the same time as I was building a false identity around him. I felt that, ethically speaking, it was an incredibly risky and, indeed, it contravened common ethics to do it in the way that the police had contravened common ethics by doing that at the Met, but sometimes as a writer, I think you've actually got to take your reader on that journey. Crazy as it seems, it was the only way to bring them inside the possibilities that I was discussing. Not to be speculative, not to guess, but actually to show them how you can build a life around a name in the way that I did. You I thought I told him his a story about that.
0: You, you, got, you got him lots and lots of documents. I got, him a, I
1: got him a passport. him a passport jail us. at any point I because
0: sense. you you ordered heroin, you possibly ordered guns based on the yes. thing on the dark net. You certainly ordered false passports, false money. Yes,
1: you this was all to show, of course, how far you can go. And yeah, you, as I said before, going, but all did you the worry you might just order. get your
0: collar felt at some point in this process?
1: I'd be liar if I said I, f- I worried about it. I, w- I was aware that that might well be the case. In fact, when I published the piece, the first version of this, um, before the book. I felt that I might well get a call or be called in or be arrested because I realised that I had gone well beyond the bounds of what was strictly legal in order to establish the false identity of this person. But again, if you're trying to investigate illegal activity and the process towards it, then you may find yourself willing, as I did at least, to take those steps. And in the end, the police didn't prosecute. It was a... It was an example of experimental journalism, I suppose, is one way of thinking about it. It was a piece of method writing, is another way of thinking about it. But certainly, I think, as a reporter... I couldn't tell
0: quite whether it was a different way of doing fiction or a journalistic investigation. I'm very happy you you say that,
1: you see, because that's exactly the kind of conundrum I wanted the reader to play with. Sometimes, as you know, as a writer, you can conceive of your job not just of supplying results or sum totals but of suggesting the arithmetic. In this case there was moral arithmetic to be offered to suggest two plus two rather than just simply to say four. might be understood to be something a writer can do from time to time. I wanted to really show the arithmetic and offer it and leave it with the reader and that piece ends with me at the door of the real Ronnie Pins mother. I don't take the reader inside the house. The reader might never know what happened inside the house. Well, what I was going
0: to say is that's a a very fictional technique. And some would suspect a slightly fictional payoff because you're naturally, journalistically, I think, was her first line to you really, Ah, Ronnie, there was nobody else like him.
1: My first line to her was, I went to speak to you about Ronnie. And when I said his name, she said, Ah, Ronnie, there was nobody like him. And said a lot of other things. Who are you? Would you want? But I decided as a that's you know experience. Oh she did, yeah. yeah. And I was slightly stunned by them. But you know, you're quite right. I mean, fictional techniques are all over it and so should they be, because in fact that's implicitly part of the point being made by by these stories, is how fictional not only are our lives, but how confected are the telling of our lives.
0: But did you, you know, have any sort of I mean you must have had some kind of anxiety about You know, you're going to this guy's mother. He's died of an overdose. You're going to say, "Hi, I'm writing a piece where I've invented a completely different life for your son, and you know, I've done various slightly illegal things in the process." You know, can we have a cup of tea? Because it'll be a great ending for my piece. I mean, there's you know, the Elizabeth Bishop line to Robert Lowell. You know, art isn't worth that much. Do you?
1: I take your point, and I think we should bear it in mind. Your line and your position on this. I mean, I certainly had it in mind. And I still have it in mind. That doesn't mean to say I won't go uh, and pursue such a subject in such a way. But I didn't do it blindly. Of course, I was nervous going into the mother's house. As it turns out, she was very pleased to have somebody in her house talking to her about Ronnie. You've got to remember, this woman hadn't heard anybody outside of her immediate family mention his name for 30 years. He was a lost boy to her. And, you know, I'm not accusing you or or, or, or any of my you know possible detractors on this one point of being hysterical but she was quite relaxed about me being there that day not so relaxed later when she saw the actual piece and I think that was again one of the difficulties I had to face I mean I explained I thought absolutely clearly to her what we were doing why I was there what brought me to her what it was about but people human beings are odd you know we're all odd and when we're in a situation but she was glad to have cups of tea and discuss Ronnie and think of what Ronnie would be if he was another person and think about Ronnie's passage in the world. Had he survived, he would be like me. She rather sort of, you know, blended the memory of Ronnie at one point with the presence of me in her kitchen.
0: Why was it you felt the need? Because I mean, that's the, the sort of split part of that story is that you did, on the one hand, you're doing this mm. fictional... Investigation, a speculative thing. But on the other hand, you're, you know, with a real journalist's, you know, regard for truth, which seems to me to be through this whole, all three essays in this book, to feel the need to track down everything you could about Ronnie himself.
1: Because I felt that in the end, it answered the point which I think is behind the good question that you're bringing to me now, which is, is it worth it? Is it worth the possible pain? You know, the Elizabeth Bishop notion is, is even the smallest amount of art or entertainment, or combination of the two, worth that, even a minute of the possible pain or doubt that could be caused. And I wanted to try and offset the pain that might accrue through this journey with an actual memorial to the actual Ronnie. And I felt, and so did his mother at one point, that I had delivered Ronnie to the world, you know, in a way that he was absent. I mean, when you put the words Ronald Pinn in at the beginning of my investigation... Into a search engine, exactly nothing came up. There was nothing relating to the life of this 20-year-old boy who died in 1980 before the invention of the internet. And of course, by the end of my investigations and my you know inventions and so on, and my reporting, there was thousands of mentions of Ronnie penn And So by ending the piece with his mother and also along the way talking about the kind of boy Ronnie was and the kind of places where he played and the kinds of friends he had and the kind of experience which had been lost from the world, I felt it was a way of just imprinting his foot back into the world ever so slightly and I hoped that that would offset this sort of radical Departures that this invented Ronnie Pin would represent. That's oh, amazing, sort of putting something into the honesty box. <laughs> well, I thought so. Maybe. <laughs> anyway,
0: Andrew Hagen, thank you very much.
1: Thank you.